What's up, everybody? This is Anthony. You're listening to the Setlist Podcast from Texas Blues Alley. This is uh, episode number seven. You can find all the episodes at texasbluesalley.com slash setlist, along with all the other news and announcements from Texas Blues Alley. A couple new things before we get into today's topic. I did a little studio tour a couple days ago. Uh, many of you know I work out of a barn here. Uh, right next to my house, and uh, I initially had everything set up in the basement. That's where I've been working for the past year, but I just recently got uh, enough of the stuff finished on the main level where the stage is that I started moving all my stuff up there, but uh, I always like to document a setup before I move on to a, a new location, so I did a quick impromptu uh, tour of my setup in the basement, and I posted that. You can find that on the set list uh, or in the uh, show notes for this episode. Also, uh, I did some experimenting with something new. Um, If you've been on Facebook at all over the past uh, month or two, you've probably noticed people live streaming where you're scrolling through your timeline and you see it says somebody's broadcasting live. Well, I have some software here uh, that I experimented with called, uh, what's it called, Wirecast? And it allows me to do pretty high-quality live streams to Facebook or to YouTube and uh, do multiple cameras, all that kind of stuff. I was just getting started with it last week, but I did a a little unannounced live stream to Facebook and actually got about 50 or 60 people tuned in uh, within a few minutes. And that went on for about 35 minutes, mainly just question and answer. Uh, Some pretty cool stuff, so you can find that uh, on the set list as well. Um, I'll try to, uh, if I'm going to start doing that regularly, I'll try to create some sort of schedule um, so you can know to tune in if you want to. I'll still experiment with live streaming on YouTube as well and uh, always record it so I can post it on the site later. I think that is uh, all that's new in terms of content uh, barn-wise. Like I said, I just got the stage finished, got some um, flooring put on the stage surface, which I found out I needed to help create contrast with the uh, strings with my over-the-shoulder camera angle. So that's done. Got my cameras and booms up. Um, you know, if you most people probably have never had the blessing slash curse of, of having to set up a studio to do real work. And uh, this is now my one, two, three, four, fifth time that I've had to move my stuff or fifth time I've had to figure out how to set up gear to produce stuff. And uh, I'm going to be in this particular spot for quite a long time, possibly for the next decade. And, uh, you know, I've got some pretty big plans in terms of rigging, like uh, light rigging and stuff like that, because I want to be able to do full video production of entire bands and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, one of the things that I've learned having had to figure out a working space so many times is that I can only do so much planning ahead of time. You know, like the requirements for me to do the kind of videos that I do are pretty specific in terms of camera angles and everything. And uh, I found that I can't truly evaluate how to optimize a space in terms of equipment placement and everything until I'm actually in there working. And uh, the problem is, is that I'm a planner and sometimes I worry about making mistakes. So I was kind of getting into this, uh, what's the term we used to use in software? It was uh, analysis paralysis is what we called it. And that's where you spend so much time analyzing and planning your software 
that you never actually get around to building it and you don't start building anything until you feel like you've solved all the problems. But the problem is, is you can't solve all the problems by planning. You can only solve problems once you get in there and start doing it because you'll uncover problems that way that you would never get to. And I found the same to be true with my studio setups where, you know, I can sit here and think all day long about, you know, I should put light rigging here and here, and this is where I should put my lights. But until I'm actually standing on that stage and experimenting with camera angles and everything, you just, I just don't know. So my wife was, you know, she's, uh, her instincts run counter to mine enough that she can keep me out of one of those unproductive cycles of analysis. And so when she heard me agonizing over, Oh, I just don't know how much of this stuff I should buy and where I should put it all. She just told me, you know, you have invested a lot of money in this. You need to get in there and start using it as soon as possible. Otherwise that money's wasted until you get in there and start using it. And all of a sudden I realized like, here I am doing this again, trying to figure out the next 10 years before I take the first step. doesn't make any sense. So what I settled on doing and what I have done and what you'd see in the pictures, uh, I'll post one of them on this episode's uh, page on the set list, is I just took my existing setup from downstairs, all of my booms, all of the lights, the things that I covered in the tour, and I just brought them up and I installed them the simplest way possible. There's two beams at either side of the front corners of the stage. I just took my best guess at where they should go. And for the past few days, I've been kind of tweaking things and getting it to the point where I can get two really nice camera angles and continue producing videos exactly as I have been, just in a different environment. Um, Because I can't really plan what to do next until I get that. Like I can't put my production on hold until I figure what I'm going to do for the next 10 years. So that's kind of, you know, a circular thing that I keep coming back to time and time again is, you know, don't overthink things. Get in there, do what you know how to do and use that space and that, you know, in it's in the using of that space that you'll figure out what you need to do next. Uh, because you might discover, you know, I might discover something as I'm standing here recording on this stage, I, an idea might hit me that would only happen from me actually standing there on the stage. And so it would never happen me sitting on the couch, you know, trying to plan out what everything's going to look like. So anyway, just a little uh, view into uh, kind of the strange problems that I need to solve doing this weird job of mine. Uh, Let's see here. I did ask about some, taking some questions on Twitter. I don't know if any of them, any questions will come in or not. Uh, but I am going to go ahead and just launch into today, to today's topic. Um, you know, I, I kind of stagger the, uh, the purpose of this show, do different things. Sometimes it's all question and answer. Uh, sometimes it's just rambling. And other times I have a topic. And uh, this is one of those weeks, it's something that's been you know, kind of rattling around in my head for a while. And that is the subject of of uh, wondering what it means to be a great guitar player, or more specifically, how much better could I be? How much better could you be uh, wondering if you're good enough? Kind of that whole kind of scale about where you're at, you know, as if being on that scale higher makes you a more valuable person or whatever. I don't know. But it is something that a lot of guitar players wonder about, you know, like how much better should I be? How much better could I be? And I kind of want to 
poke and prod at that idea a little bit, maybe change your thinking a little bit. Um, because this is a subject that's kind of tormented me a little bit through the years. Some of you have, have heard my story of, you know, when I first started playing, you know, I within three months I was, you know, comparing myself to Eric Clapton because I knew how to play a few notes fast. <laughs> and, uh, you know, since there was no YouTube back then, you know, I didn't go out to see a lot of bands. Kenny Wayne Shepherd hadn't really broken through. I wasn't even aware of guys like Steve Vai or anything like that. Uh, I didn't know what great was. In my mind, Stevie Ray Vaughan, Eric Clapton, they were great. And if I could play something that sounded like them, that meant I was great. So I lived most of the first three or four years of my guitar life uh, in complete oblivion. Like, I, I had no idea... Uh, where I actually ranked in the world of guitar players in terms of skill. And then um, it was probably, you know, if you live in a bubble enough, you can kind of convince yourself of anything. And uh, because I learned what seemed to be fairly quickly in terms of technical skill, uh, I thought I was pretty hot stuff, you know? And I didn't see a lot of competition. By this time, Kenny Wayne Shepherd had broken, but I could, I could learn some of his stuff, and you know, I couldn't really play it as well as he could. But I kind of felt like, well, I'm, at, you know, I'm almost as good as he is. That must mean I'm pretty great, you know. And so, fast forward to 2007. Now I've been playing for about 10 years, 11 years, and. Uh, I had been in a couple of bands. I was probably a little bit more aware of the outside world in terms of guitar players, but still, there was a shocking amount of ignorance on my part as to just how good an awful lot of guitar players are, especially people outside of blues. And so then I start this hobby putting guitar lessons on the internet. And, uh, you know, a weird thing started happening is that obviously people, they liked the lessons, you know. But when I did a couple of gear demos, people would compliment my playing. Because I wasn't teaching anything. They were just saying, oh, you play real nice. You know, you're a good player. Some people even made the comment like they're not used to seeing a teacher play that well, which... At the time, I didn't understand why they would say that, but since then, I've realized that teachers kind of get a bad rap for, you know, those who can do, those who can't teach. You've probably heard that before. But it was weird for me to have people complimenting me for my playing because I wasn't in it for that. I was in it because I loved teaching, and it did far more for my ego for somebody to compliment my teaching than my playing. But then a weird thing happened is that I started to kind of absorb that uh, flattery a little bit. And I started to feel like it's not enough for me just to teach well. People expect me to be a great player as well. And so if I post a video of me playing, it has to be awesome. And I started thinking about, you know, what are people thinking about me when they watch my videos and I just 
kind of started to absorb this pressure to be this great guitar player. And so I find myself found myself again facing this idea, what does it mean for me to be a great guitar player? Am I really great? Well, see, the problem is, is that along with the success of Stevie Snacks and and uh, all that comes with that, I found myself traveling more. And I'd be going to guitar shows, and I'd be going to NAMM shows, and just other places where other guitar players go. So I, when that whole thing started taking off in 2007, I started finding myself around large groups of guitar players for the first time in my life. And boy, you go to Nashville, a place like Nashville, for like a, a gear or an amp expo or something, and you quickly find out that you're not that special in the grand scheme of things. And uh, I don't know if if this is something I heard from somebody else or something that, that I made up, but... Uh, there's a saying I like to use, which is, if you still think you're a great guitar player, you obviously haven't spent enough time in Nashville. Because, um, uh, boy, I go to these amp shows, and it's like, I, I barely even want to pick up the guitar to try stuff out, because the next guy who comes in the booth who's waiting to play after you could just destroy you. There's just so many good players down there. Not to mention the fact that Vince Gill walks around these shows like he's Joe Q average guy totally doesn't care how many people recognize him, whatever. And the guy's just a killer guitar player. So it's like all of a sudden, like my little tiny world of what constituted good guitar playing just kind of got shattered and I got real self-conscious, you know, uh, one thing that, that was really kind of embarrassing is a couple years ago, I was down there at summer Nam and, uh, my friends at Wampler pedals, were kind of throwing a little party at the stage on Broadway there and, uh, a terrific, a uh, player named uh, Martin McDaniel. I think that's his name. Uh, he's a real great country guitar player, like r- super talented. And so he put on a killer show, but then it went into kind of a jam session. And uh, he called up me and uh, Travis Feaster, who uh, is an excellent blues rock guitarist, uh, has a lot of the same influences uh, that I do. And at that point, he was working at Wampler Pedals. So they call us both up and... Uh, I think we did like uh, Pride and Joy or something like that first. And so, you know, that's kind of like my home turf. Like I was pretty comfortable with that. And then uh, Travis and I were trying to think what song to do next. And we were almost ready to call out some blues tune that we would know. And the other guitar player on stage calls out some country tune that uh, it wasn't a difficult song in terms of chord progression. It was real simple, one, four, five type progression. But if you've never tried to play over like a, I think it kind of had that train beat, like something like that. I can't remember exactly, but nonetheless, it's a beat that I don't play over often. And it was the kind of song where blues playing fit like a square peg in a round hole. And um, Travis had done enough studying that he was able to play something that sounded authentic for that kind of music. But I really just felt lost and I was kind of embarrassed, you know, now everybody there was super friendly there. It wasn't a competitive atmosphere or anything like that, but you know, the, the amount of discomfort that I felt on stage during there, how lost I felt, uh, 
it really made me take uh, kind of emotional inventory of how good do I think that I am? You know, and why do I think I'm that good? And as I, as I began to work, work through that, uh, one of the things I realized is that, you know, I've only ever really studied blues and, and I've picked up, you know, enough music theory to, to play some rock stuff. And I played rhythm guitar in church for a long time, played some black gospel and, you know, so I developed a decent library of, of theory for, for playing basic stuff, but you call out some chord that's not a major or minor or a seventh or a ninth chord. It's not like I can just go to that and play it, you know, or you pick some sort of style of music like country. It's not like I can just jump in there and play it. And I thought like, man, I'm really not that good. Or I, what I eventually realized is that I'm really not that versatile. Like I'm what they call a one trick pony. You know, you give me a 12 bar song or a song that sticks to the main chords, simple chords and, and a beat that I'm used to, and I can do all right. But you get me outside of that and I am completely lost. And at first I was embarrassed and I felt like, well, I need to fix this. You know, I need to, uh, I need to start studying and I need to really widen my horizons and, and learn more stuff. But then I came back to why. Why do I need to do that? Why do I care so much about being respected for all of the other kinds of music that I don't play? I mean, I know I can hold my own when it comes to playing blues enough to, you know, at least convince enough people that I'm decent. Why do I care so much what other people think about my lack of country playing or, you know, anything else? Why does that matter to me? And I realized that a lot of it came from this idea that since I had started teaching lessons online, people had been passing me compliment after compliment. Oh, you're such a great player and love your playing and everything like that. And I had kind of taken that very specific positive reinforcement about the way that I play blues and ballads. And I had kind of turned that into just generic compliments that I need to be a great all-around guitar player. And once I realized that disconnect, I realized, you know what, there's nothing wrong with being a specialist. You don't have to be embarrassed about being a specialist. You know, there's nothing wrong with being at a blues jam, having it be your turn on stage, having them suggest like a fusion song and being like, uh, I'm, I can't, you know, I'm not going to be very good. Let's get somebody else up here for that. Nobody expects you to be a generalist. And if they do expect that, then why should they? They don't know anything about you. Like there's nothing inherently better about being a generalist than being a specialist. Unless that you're the kind of snobby person that feels like everybody needs to be well-rounded. No. B.B. King wasn't well-rounded. Albert King wasn't well-rounded. To a certain extent, Jimi Hendrix wasn't well-rounded. Everybody's got their, you know, things they're good at and, you know, kind of their sweet spot and some have a wider sweet spot than others. And there are guys who can genuinely play a ton of different styles and do it really, really well. But for the most part, the most legendary guitarists are not that good at a bunch of different things. And, uh, 
I kind of came to grips with the fact that, you know, until I really want to learn to play country guitar or until I really want to have any idea what I'm doing if I were to play jazz, then I'm just not going to be embarrassed by not being able to do it. I'm just, I mean, how could I know it? I didn't study it. I mean, it's one thing to study something and not be able to learn it. Like, I kind of always kind of felt like classical guitar would be that for me. Classical guitar would be something that I feel like I would study and I just wouldn't be able to do it. That's one thing. If, if you want to be embarrassed about something, be embarrassed about something that you really worked hard at and you still suck at it. But there's no point in being embarrassed about something that you haven't even worked on, but you're afraid people will think you'd know how to do it. Do you like if you speak English as your first language, are you embarrassed that you can't speak French? You know, like if you if you went somewhere and there were people who spoke French, would you be embarrassed that you don't speak French? No, because you never studied it. If you wanted to learn French, you would have studied it. So why am I embarrassed that I can't play country style guitar? Well, it's because I felt like people have this expectation of me to be good at everything that I do, and I'm just not. And so that brings me around to, let's flip this around. This is enough about me. What about you? What makes you feel like you're not good? Or what what do you think you need to do to be great? Is it technical skill? Do you feel like if you could play faster, then you'd be a great player? Do you feel like you don't have enough theory knowledge, like you can't follow a chord progression? I want to challenge you a little bit that someone is always going to be better than you at whatever it is that you try and do. If you work on your technical skill, maybe there's a small chance that you would get so good at technical stuff that uh, every guitar poll in the world would nominate you as the best one and everybody would vote for you. Probably not going to happen, though. Everyone, there's always going to be somebody who's better than you at whatever it is that you try and improve. So given that, it, the question, instead of being how good how how can you be the best? A better question is how good could you actually be? And with that comes the acceptance that some people are just going to be better at certain things just because of uh, just because of uh, physical differences. You know, like not everybody in football can run the forty in the same speed. Not everybody in basketball can jump as high as everybody else. Some people are always going to have a natural advantage in some things. So give up on the idea of being the best at anything and give up on the idea of being as good as somebody else. I've spent so many years trying to figure out if I'm as good as this person or that person. It's a complete waste of time. Forget about it. The better question is, how good could you possibly be? And where are you now relative to that? And so what I propose is that it does not matter how good you could be relative to someone else. What really matters is the difference between where you're at and how good you possibly could be and what you're doing to close that gap. I don't care if you could play as fast as me. I don't care if you could play as fast as as uh, Jimi Hendrix or Stevie Ray Vaughan. The point is how fast could you play with your muscles in your hands 
And how far away are you from being able to do that? And what are you doing about that? Don't look around to see who else can play faster than you. Think about what am I doing to get faster? Stop thinking about how many songs that guy in that band in your town is able to play. Doesn't matter how many songs he can play. Think about how many songs do you wish you were able to play and how many can you actually play and what are you doing about that? See, it changes how you interpret things like practice and it changes how you interpret things like failure. Let's say you go to a blues jam and you're still stuck in this mentality where you have to be as good as everyone else. Well, I got news for you. Every town has a 12-year-old kid who guitar magazine readers love to read about how he's the next child prodigy or whatever. And he's going to come up on stage and he's going to just wipe the stage with you. Just get used to that because there's always going to be that kind of person. The real question is, if you go to a blues jam, how good could you, with your physical limitations and your time constraints, how good could you be and how good are you actually? And what are you doing to improve that? If you go to a, a blues jam and they call out a song that has a chord in it that you've never played before and you feel a little embarrassed because you got lost at that chord change, don't be embarrassed because everybody else knew it. If you're going to be embarrassed about something, be embarrassed that it is possible for you to know that, but you still don't know it. So go home and do something about it. Don't worry about what other people are think. Do it for yourself. It's going to feel good to know that chord change the next time. And I, you know, I don't know if any of this is making sense, but I really feel like trying to measure yourself next to other people, on one hand, it can motivate you. And it can get you practicing, but it can also discourage you. And for some people, it can actually make you want to give up. And uh, specifically, when you're taking lessons from somebody, if you're watching my courses, uh, you know, you got to accept the reality. You might study all my courses and never be as good as I am at something or, or the other. On the flip side of that, I already have students who started with my courses, who were objectively worse than me when they started, that now I'm intimidated to play with because I still struggle with the same stuff I'm telling you about. Think about that. They told me that my lessons played a role in shaping their development, and now they're, you know, if I sit down to jam with them, they they wipe the floor with me, you know? There's always going to be somebody better. It's You don't have to measure up to anybody. Now, the last thing I want to talk about is what it means to actually be great or to get better. What are things that you can get better at? Well, you know, we already talked about speed. Speed's an obvious thing. My general theory on speed is that you should be able to express whatever you want to express. And that means having enough speed to play the things that you feel. You know, I heard Jimmy Page one time said that your technical skill should never prevent you from being able to capture what you want to capture. I think that's what what he said. And so I would tweak that a little bit to say your technical skill should never limit your ability to express yourself. So to me, that's why you study things like speed and technique. But there are other ways that you can be great. 
you can be great at playing slow. Because when you play fast, you you get you can kind of cheat a little bit because the speed becomes something that people pay attention to more than the notes, if that makes sense. You know, for a brief period, they're paying attention to the fact that, oh, look how fast his fingers are moving, not really listening to the notes that you're playing. Well, when you play slow, you can't cheat like that because the speed's not impressing them. All there is is the notes. So if you're playing slow, you got to be able to pick your notes well, and you got to be able to play them well. So what if instead of feeling down about the fact that you're not fast enough, what if you're really focused on how well can I play slow? Because it involves a completely different set of uh, mental muscles to play good when you're playing slow. Here's another one. What about phrasing? This might be something that you haven't thought about much, but phrasing is kind of a an all-encompassing term for how you put your musical ideas together. Why this lick comes after this lick. Why this lick happens at this point in the song. So things like where you start and end your licks. What kind of licks do you put together? Do these three licks in a row form what feels like a sentence? That's a whole area that you may, you may have been ignoring. You know, it's only, it's an idea that I've always done reflexively, not really intentionally. And it's something that that's something I want to improve on. I want to get better at being able to plan out longer series of licks that form complete thoughts rather than just kind of doing it stream of consciousness. Uh, what's another one? Maybe it's uh, getting better at playing a specific kind of blues. I don't know. Kind of, or, or maybe for you, it's maybe it's time to stop focusing on blues altogether because you've already done enough with that to satisfy what you think is good. But now you're really itching to play something else. Maybe you're into metal. Maybe you're into acoustic guitar and you want to be able to to write compelling acoustic guitar songs. Well, I'll tell you what, what you're learning in blues isn't going to help you that much. You got to, you know, you want to be able to play good emotive folk rock on acoustic. The Roy's, the, the rules are different. You know, the tricks that you learn on electric aren't going to necessarily work. You got to study it. So if anything, I just want to challenge your idea of what it means to be great, what it means to be a good guitar player, most of all, challenge this idea that you have to compare to anybody. You know, like you're you're always going to encounter somebody. You know, here's the annoying thing is that maybe you hold on to this idea of comparing yourself to others because that's what the people around you do. And the bad news is if you let go of that, you're going to be more happy unless you come around those people. Okay. If you let go of this idea that you're ever going to be as good as such and such or compare yourself to them, you're going to be much happier until you get around that friend who's always comparing the two of you. Okay? Those people are insufferable to be around, especially when they don't have the good sense to keep their mouth shut about it. Um, but you just got to make a decision. Are you going to live your life, you know, always feeling like you're not measuring up to everybody, always embarrassed to play in a guitar store, always embarrassed to, uh, you know, you go to an amp show because one of them happens to come within driving distance of your town and, you're afraid to test anything out. You got these three, $4,000 amps that you're never going to have the chance to play again, but you're embarrassed to pick up a guitar and play it for what people might think. Forget about them. You don't know them. You might never see them again. 
You don't have to be as good as the other players. All you got to do is focus on how good you could be and then uh, do something about getting there. Anyway, that's my rant for today. So I'll take a couple questions here. Uh, let's see. Robert McPoo. <laughs> Finally told me how to pronounce his name. Robert McPoo. Looking to integrate open strings more in my soloing. Any tips? Uh, that's a good question. Obviously, it has a lot to do with what key you're in. So if you're in the key, let's say you're in standard tuning and you're in the key of A, there's obviously opportunities to work in open strings there. Obviously, if you're playing in the key of E, that's easy. And also B. So B, A, and E, A, and B are two. Uh, but then also uh, in the key of G. Because uh, especially if you're doing some major stuff in the key of G, your box five is going to start at the nut. Other than that, you know, I don't have a lot of specific tips other than uh, listen for songs where they're using open strings and uh, learn those licks. See how they're doing it. It's not something that I've ever consciously worked on. Uh, let's see if anybody else asked anything over the past week. No, it looks like that's about it. Anyway, uh, I'll be back again. Keep a watch on Facebook for uh, any live streaming action. I'll try and tweet it out or come up with some kind of schedule. But uh, maybe I'll see you, maybe I won't. Till next time, thanks for listening. Take it easy. Take it easy.